thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Climate change is happening. The world is facing a warming of roughly 3 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels by 2100, and that is assuming that governments deliver on their policies to cut emissions. Next week, leaders from around the world would gather in New York City for the United Nations Climate Action Summit. And on Friday this week, people are expected to take to the streets in over 150 countries to, in their own words, demand an end to the age of fossil fuel. I'm Catherine Braik, The Economist's Environment Editor, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast about science and technology. In the run-up to all this, we ask, given that the threat that climate change poses to society only ever seems to get greater and more urgent, what can be done now to alter that course? Joining me to try to answer this question are three guests whose work has been central to the issue. Christiana Figueres was Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change from 2010 to 2016. And in 2015, she facilitated the Paris Agreement, under which governments promised to limit warming to two degrees Celsius or less. She now convenes Mission 2020, an initiative to peak global emissions by next year. And she joins us on the line from Costa Rica. Hello, Christiana. Thank you very much for having me today. Thank you. Also on the line is Kevin Anderson. Kevin is Professor of Energy and Climate Change in the School of Engineering at Manchester University. His work informed the UK Climate Change Act and the development of national carbon budgets. Hello, Kevin. Hi there. It's nice to join you. Thank you. And with me in the studio is Ed Davey, a member of the Food and Land Use Coalition with the World Resources Institute. Ed was a contributor to the Institute's recent report on creating a sustainable food future. Ed, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Kevin, let's start with you. If you could just give us a bit of a scene setter, what is the current state of the climate? How bad is it really? Well, what we've seen so far is about a one degree centigrade warming over the last 100 years. And most of that's occurred only over the last 50 years. And we know that's come about through our emissions of greenhouse gases. And just to put that in some sort of context, we've only really seen about one degree of warming over the last uh, 10,000 years. So during sort of the modern human times, Um, in terms of the main source of the warming has been caused by burning of fossil fuels and the emissions of carbon dioxide. Though indeed the emissions also from food and agriculture are very important players in this, but mostly it's energy. And what we've witnessed in the last few years are ongoing increases. So emissions went up last year by about 1.6%. They did the year before. And let's also be clear, we're not going to stay at the temperature we're at today. Mm. We are continuing to emit, so the temperature will continue to go up. So we're not at a new climate, a new normal yet. So the situation is... um, I think dire is a fair description or the language of climate emergency, which I've been reluctant to use. But the more I've thought about it, the more I think that that is an appropriate way to describe the situation we're in today. And so in the long term, what's the outlook? 
Well, unless we radically bend that curve down at rates, I think, beyond what most of us are prepared yet to really consider, then we're going to probably head towards three, four, five degrees centigrade of warming across the century. That's effectively like living on a different planet. So right. we are talking about in just a handful of generations going from a stable climate that we've had pretty much for 10,000 years to a climate that is fundamentally different to anything that we would recognise. Okay, so some sobering facts there. Um, in the last year or a couple years, I think most people will be familiar with the fact that we've seen a flurry of activity on a government level. Here in the UK, we had a net zero commitment earlier this year by 2050. Um, and of course, there's activity not just on the government level, but also non-state actors. So businesses, CEOs, industry, states, cities, mayors, etc. Christiana, everybody else feel free to pitch in. But can you tell us a little bit about what kind of action are we seeing and is it important? The commitments from governments such as the UK, but also some other European as well as New Zealand, as well as some Latin American, you do begin to see that there are some governments that are beginning to take this quite seriously. We also see that there are corporations that have understood that this is about business continuity for them, uh, that there are no customers uh, on a dead planet and that it is in their own interest as well as in the own interest of the strength and stability of any country's economy to decarbonize as quickly as possible. The third sector that is moving forward is the financial sector. There we already have uh, more than $6 trillion that are assets under management by uh, more than a 1,000 financial institutions that are migrating their financial assets from high carbon to low carbon. And then, of course, now the very new wave that is coming in is activists on the streets. So whether it is governments, corporates, finance, or civil society that is expressing its concern on the streets, we do see a surge of concern and activity. All of that is very good news, but we're not yet bending the curve. We already increased last year. We increased greenhouse gases globally by 1.7%, um, and we're getting dangerously close to 2020. By 2020, we have to have put ourselves in a position of beginning to descend emissions rather than continue to increase. If I can take this to a very tangible, practical level, 23% of our emissions come from land use. And Ed, you've looked at how we cut those in very real terms. What needs to happen tomorrow or even yesterday? The first thing is we've got to protect the world's remaining forests and critical ecosystems. We also need to protect the world's peatlands. We need to restore a huge amount of degraded land. We need to reduce food loss and waste. In parts of the world, we need to reduce meat consumption, while in other parts, arguably increase it. But the bottom line is we need to manage the land infinitely more sustainably, mm. protect the ecosystems that remain, sustainably intensify where we can, and also address consumption and diets. It sounds a little bit like a wish list, right? And that's, that's always my problem with these things. It sounds like we're creating this long list of things that would happen in an ideal world, but in practice seem incredibly difficult to achieve, especially given the time constraints. It's true, and the land is complex, it's political, but there's a lot already happening right around the world. I mean, if you look at India, for example, with zero-budget natural farming in Andhra Pradesh, you look at an amazing revolution happening in China with farmers' markets and a pivot towards more organic ecological production in Colombia, Ethiopia, with land restoration, 
Indonesia, where there's been a substantial reduction in deforestation and loss of peatland in the last 18 months. There is a lot that's happening. But of course, we need to go to scale very fast. I'd also add that I think the first thing you need to do when you're in a hole is to stop digging. Mm. So we look at someone like the UK, where we have the Climate Change Act in 2008, which is an excellent piece of legislation. But then you hear the rhetoric about what we're going to do in the UK, and certainly there have been some improvements in decarbonising our electricity system. But at the same time, our government has enthusiastically supported the ongoing development of offshore oil and gas. So we've got the new Clare Ridge oil platform, the new Glengorm gas field. You see the same thing with Statoil, or as it's renamed itself now, Equinor in Norway. So you've got some of the wealthiest countries in the world still developing fossil fuels. And as Christiana says, we have to bend that curve. We have to bend it rapidly. And the first thing you need to do when you want to bend that curve is to stop digging out more fossil fuels. Mm. Ultimately, the climate does not care about how efficient we are or how many renewables we have. What the climate really cares about are the total quantity of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas molecules. So we need to be looking, particularly the wealthy parts of the world, like the UK and Norway here, to rapidly phase out the existing fossil fuel use in a just way so the people who have those jobs can transfer across to the renewables jobs and to all of the um, other sort of infrastructural changes that we'll need to decarbonise our energy system. So you talk about phasing away from fossil fuels, but at the end of the day, the reality is that fossil fuels are completely integrated into our everyday lives, right? It's not quite as easy as just switching off a tap somewhere. So how do you do that? And as you say, particularly, how do you do it in a just and equitable way? Reforming fossil fuel subsidies, I think, is a big prize. And the same actually for agricultural subsidies. In the new report we published, the Food and Land Use Coalition calculates that $700 billion per year are currently spent on ag subsidies. And that underwrites the underperformance of that sector. So reforming those subsidies, giving renewables a level playing field and enabling a massive uptake on innovation would be one way forward. And I do think, Katri, that um, it's important to understand that, sadly, we have run out of time to choose which way to proceed here. Mm. Is this a national regulation challenge or is this a consumer behavior transformation? The fact is, at this point, it has to be both. If we had 20, 30 years, we could choose either way and move forward. But at this point, we have run out of time. And so we need both the systemic transformations that you've heard from Kevin and from Ed. And we also need behavior changes. So just because governments may or may not be moving forward with their policies and measures does not excuse the individual from also being much more mindful about the embedded carbon in our daily consumption of food, our daily use of energy, the way we transport ourselves. All of those are individual choices over which we have full control. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. So this is a point that I wanted to get to. I have probably quite a large carbon footprint. I don't have a car. I do cycle, but I also fly. I heat my house on gas. And obviously, my diet has also a considerable carbon footprint. 
most of us, I think, are completely daunted by the challenge that you're talking about, Tristiana. Most of us, I think, don't even know where to begin. So I'm curious from each of you, since you are so embedded in this, where do people begin? Well, I don't think it's that difficult. I mean, first, you have to begin by deciding, making a very conscious choice that you're going to contribute. But just being, you know, standing there and being admiring the problem and being daunted um, doesn't help. So you have to say, all right, right, we are all equally responsible here. We can all contribute. So first thing, get a carbon calculator, of which there are many on the internet, and just figure out your carbon footprint. It doesn't have to go to the milligram, just, you know, a basic sense of what is your carbon footprint. Secondly, figure out what is your plan to reduce your own personal footprint down to one half of whatever it is today over the next 10 years. That is not a daunting task. And in the meantime, start contributing to the absorption of CO2. We have to get the CO2 that is in the air and put it back into the soil. All of us can contribute by planting. And in the meantime, begin to reduce from your food consumption, from your energy, from the way you insulate or don't insulate your home. There are many things that we can all do. There is no excuse not to get involved. I think, um, Caroline, Kevin, you, you, sort of, to, yeah. you already sort of um, alluded to the answers there. You are already aware that you, know, you don't drive. You bring that to the fore because you're aware that driving a car doesn't help. You mentioned you're flying because you're aware that has a huge carbon footprint. So actually, I think most of us are fairly aware of what the principal issues are that we need to address. I would also point out this equity component within countries. If you look at somewhere like the UK, I work in Manchester and just north of where the university is, the people there have incredibly low footprints. These are relatively poor people. They're mostly working, but in low quality houses that need to be insulated and so forth, but don't have the money for that. So that's a regulation issue that the governments need to put in place. But if you look to places where I live, there there are many more opportunities for people like me and the people that live in that area, a wealthier area, to make significant changes to how we're living our lives. So though there's plenty of opportunities that are there and we know what they are, it does require almost a more sort of cultural sort of value shift. And that is going to come about from the early adopters of this new way of thinking, for us discussing these issues, discussing them with our children, listening to the, the school strikes, um, and generating a new cultural dynamic that requires us to aspire to other ways to live in our world rather than just ones of, of ever more consumption, which is inevitably, even if we make it low carbon, will still be unsustainable. That sounds... Great, but it does sound like um, there's basically a sort of dictated plan for how people should be living their lives. There's no way out of that. Think about that dictation. We either, the wealthy ones and the high emitters, either have to have their lives dictated to a degree, or we carry on with the freedoms we have today, and we dictate climate change on the poor and the climate vulnerable living on the coastal strip of Bangladesh and elsewhere. I agree with everything that Kevin so there is So no, there isn't a no-dictation route here. You know, it's one of choice between the wealthy making changes dictated or imposed upon them to some degree by regulations that we should be driving for ourselves, or we impose those changes on the poorer people elsewhere and future generations, including our own children. So, Ed, what it's do you say to that? It's interesting to observe that societies can change. If you think about the slave trade, if you think about Martin Luther King, I do believe we may be on the cusp of an extraordinary transformation right around the world, communities, companies governments are acting. Now, we're absolutely clear they're not moving fast enough. And my goodness, we've got to scale up our ambition a thousandfold very fast. And the UN Climate Summit coming up is a good opportunity for countries to indicate that. And we're 
waiting to hear what India has to say, China, Indonesia, European Union, etc. But it, you know, society can pivot fast. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to show the ways that countries and communities can turn this around. And it can be done. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I would say, you know, that um, there are signs of this transformation already sprouting. I spend quite a bit of my time with uh, young people, and I wouldn't say all young people, but Mm -hmm. there is an increasing number of young people who have decided that everything that Kevin has described is not for them. They don't want Mm -hmm. a car. They don't want to consume. They don't want a big house. They have a very different value set because they have understood that if there's any dictation here, it is we have dictated this to ourselves because we have reached planetary boundaries. For them, it's actually cool to share transportation. It's actually cool to be on a bike. They have a very different view of what desirability is. So I'm actually quite excited about uh, already this sprouting coming forward of a very different view of what is our livelihood going to look like. Yeah, I agree that the societal changes recently have been quite surprising. And I think the generational shift is really interesting. However, I do feel like so we've been here before, right? In my time covering climate change, I've seen it at least three times. And I'm sure you guys have seen it four more. The sense that something, well, actually, as Ed put it, that we're on a cusp, that something's about to change. I think we had it uh, in 2006 when the IPCC came out and Nick Stern, and there was a whole flurry of activity around that. I think we had it in Copenhagen, and we all know how that ended. And I think we had it in Paris. And so one thing that I keep asking myself is very simply, what's different this time, other than the fact that we need it to happen faster and bigger and greater. I would agree with you. I think we've had these these false starts. But I think to some extent, those false starts were deliberately put in place, or at least they, they emerged quite rapidly. That's what they were. And I think it's because the current economic framing of our society looks to be incompatible with the rates of change that we require. And the problem, I think, with all those other um, sort of potential tipping points you talked about was that they were effectively trying to say, how can we tip within that model? So whether that was Stern, whether that was, to some extent, Copenhagen, and at least Paris, but Paris set a more quantitative framework as well. I'm not saying that this is going to succeed. It is our choice as whether it succeeds or not. But I think the opportunity is different today because we are prepared to question the system within which we will have to make these changes. That doesn't mean to say we will succeed. That means we have to try as hard as we possibly can. But if you align the much cheaper renewable energies that are now available, um, if you align that with potential value changes that we can now discuss, that debate has been open up mostly by the younger generation but by others as well if you start to coalesce some of these issues then i think you can start to see ways that we can get ourselves out of the situation that we're in kevin i think that's the most optimistic i've ever heard (laughs) i I agree with the spirit of what kevin has said but i wouldn't call the previous efforts false starts i think what we have seen over the past certainly 30 years that i have been in this field is continually growing and increasing levels of understanding we we have seen increasing levels of technological development, of policy. But never of fast enough. So it's it's never no. fast enough. It's always been growing. It's always building upon the previous. What I think is different now is we're building on everything that is there. But I actually think that we have exponentially 
increased the level of both the outrage and exponentially increased the level of optimism. We are actually in a point now where I have never seen so much outrage and so much anger and so much impatience, which is all a very good thing because we all need a very healthy dose of that. We also need a healthy dose of optimism, which is to see that we can get ourselves out of this. Because if we just fall into a hole of despair, we won't be able to get out. But do we then just hope that this new generation is going to carry on being outraged and optimistic and build a new system that is completely different to the system that we've existed in and created? I just wanted to add to everything that my colleagues have said, which I completely agree with, just this sense of people's feeling of crisis. I mean, I was with three indigenous Amazonian leaders from Brazil in London last week. They were here and they were talking about the crisis in their regions. And it was very, very stark. And I think right around the world, people are observing what's happening and thinking, my goodness, this has got to shift now or we're in deep trouble. And I think that the starkness of the climate science that Kevin set out at the outset is also concentrating people's minds like never before. It's very hard, populism, the like. But I think people are wising up to this around the world. But I also think, um, come back to the point about you know, the system changing, let's not just see climate change in isolation here. Now, I'm not saying these are good things, but where they're talking about the banking crisis, the Arab Spring, we've got people like Corbyn, who's had, again, I'm not saying these are good or bad, we can make our own interpretation of them, but he stands outside of the establishment. So we see a whole suite of these things where people within the system and collectives within the system are questioning it anyway. So I don't think we should pretend that the system itself is somehow stable. It is continually trying to, to reinforce its stability, but there are these incredible increasing, I think, voices more widely that aren't all climate related, but they are ones that have had a lot of dissatisfaction with how the system has actually delivered and the inequality Mm. within it. And I think to me, I I mean, I don't think we're going to succeed, but we won't succeed if we don't try. So it's not just about the technologies. And probably it's just a a matter of semantics. I don't like the term of sort of optimism. To me, Mm. it's realism. Um, But, you know, let's be realistic. We looks like we're going to go to hell in a handcart, but we don't have to. And that is our choice. It's not about something else that's going to pressurise us. It's not about luck. It's about us choosing to make those sorts of changes. Christiana, do we need to basically overturn capitalism to solve this? Well, unfortunately, we don't have time for that. (laughs) Honestly, the next 10 years are absolutely critical to climate change. And I don't think we're going to overturn capitalism. We can definitely mould it to serve this purpose. And I think that is underway. And I also think that the contribution of corporations is critical. We're not going to do this without corporations doing the right thing. Harness the power of capitalism would be my argument and also establish a kind of martial plan for the environment for our times. I mean, we know what we need to do on energy, on transport, on food and land use, on infrastructure. It's going to be hard, but we've got a very clear plan. Let's just go for it, starting at the UN Climate Summit in the coming days. Every country has a role, every leader, left or right, every CEO, every community group. You know, this is all hands on deck for the next 10 to 12 years. We know what we need to do. Let's do it. So we do need to wrap up. But before we wrap up, I've got a double question for each one of you. And that is, one, how do you address climate change in your personal lives? And secondly, if you were speaking as you are to our listeners, what is the one thing that each one of our listeners should do tomorrow? I'm trying to reduce the number of flights I take every year. Kevin's very strong on that. And then my recommendation would be for many of us to reduce the red meat and the dairy we consume, not get rid of it altogether. Very small amounts, very high animal welfare, 
and it should be a luxury rather than a, a day-to-day. And that's specifically in Western, wealthier Correct. countries? Correct. Okay. In Ethiopia, a country I love, many hundreds of people, thousands of people need to consume more animal protein, and that's absolutely fine as it should be. But in the West, that would be one very strong recommendation. Christiana? I gave up red meat many, many years ago, and I can totally recommend it because it's, it's done wonders for my health. So not just my personal health, the planet health, both. And as a family, we do have a tree planting program because all of us fly way too much. Great. Kevin? I stopped flying in 2004. It's not flown since then. And I moved to a flat from a house, and I probably cut my driving by a half to three quarters. But To be honest, I think the individual changes that we make in themselves are really not very important. The point is you make them and then you vociferously talk about them with your friends, your colleagues, your family, with your work colleagues. The actual changes themselves are only there as a catalyst for conversation with others to try and drive that change more widely. Because ultimately what we have to deliver is not changed by some individuals, but is system level change. But I think the role of the individual in catalyzing that system level change is hugely important. So make the changes that we've all spoken about, but then talk about them with other people and also engage openly in the political process. Those emissions themselves aren't hugely important, except for they give us credibility to open that debate. Fascinating. Christiana Figueres, Kevin Anderson at Davey, thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Our guests had lots of tangible suggestions for ways to cut your carbon footprint, but it's clear that the challenges ahead are enormous. As people gather in New York, they'll be asking how governments and corporations can massively amp up efforts to reduce greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. The question is whether these discussions will turn into results or whether this will be another false start. And that's all for this week's Babbage. You can read more in the upcoming edition of The Economist, which has a focus on climate change. Or why not subscribe? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 for £12. And while you're with us, please don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Catherine Braig, and in London, this is The Economist. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.